the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 157. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, once again, we've got a Q&A lined up for you. So Jack, the first question of the day, it asks, what are you sick of hearing and seeing in the health and fitness industry? Yeah, so when I was thinking about this question, I think I was honestly a bit surprised by how little I'm sick of seeing. And I think that's partially because on social media, we have a choice of who we follow and who we expose ourselves to. And I honestly don't really follow that many people. Well, I don't follow anyone that I don't like. That would just be silly. Yeah, that would be (laughs) very silly. (laughs) So I don't really get that much, get exposed to people who I don't like. And probably two things come to mind though, just in general. And one of those is people selling things with an agenda, which even they know is wrong or incorrect or not healthy and just selling their own way of doing things for the the sake of making money. And I can understand it if it's a spin-off of something or an alteration of something which does work. So for example, someone's uh, training principles, which are derived from like, let's say the muscle and strength pyramids and around 10 to 20 working sets per week, but not something that's off the charts and potentially harmful to the individual. Or for example, like only using resistance bands, everything needs to be banded for every exercise of every workout um, to, to achieve the best results. Like that would, that's just a bit silly. And also people calling out others in the fitness industry just for the sake of getting more exposure. Mm. And that also frustrates me a little bit as well when people are honestly just trying their best and someone just goes out and calls them out for doing something that they think is wrong even though there's lots of different ways to go about the same thing. Yeah, slide into that person's DM and show some respect, right? Mm. Yeah, I I certainly get that too. Ultimately, when we did get this question, I'm along the exact same lines as you. I was like, there's actually so many things I love about the health and fitness industry, but you raised a really good point in that you only really are exposed to what you choose to be exposed to. And that really does come down to who you follow. So if you choose to follow a lot of evidence-based people in this space and people who really practice what they preach and great athletes who are in the bodybuilding scene, then you really are going to be exposed to message after message after message and just be inundated with a lot of positivity and just education, which I think is fantastic. But of course, you can be skewed the other way as well. Mm, For sure. But it really does come down to some people certainly are very dogmatic, like it's my way or the highway. What kind of gets me sometimes is those videos that you do see floating around on Instagram and it's like, stop doing this, do this, you know, and they give some example of an exercise and they're like, you're doing it wrong. You have to do it this way. You don't have to do anything, you know, you can, people move in very different ways, but also I know myself as a coach, like if you want to get someone to do something, you don't just like insult them and mm-hmm. call them out off the bat. You're not like, stop doing your lap pull down like this. It's like, are you doing your lap pull down like this? Hmm. How about you try out this instead and perhaps see if you feel and engage your lats even more. So there's two different ways to go about it. And 
don't get me wrong, some of those exercise videos I understand, they're with good intention. They're trying to keep people safe in the gym and perform with better form, I suppose. But some of them can be uh, a, a little bit... Just shaming. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not very fair, for sure. Mm. What What's something that actually really gets me is that there seems to be this false hope and this message that is sold to people that I believe can be a little bit misleading when it comes to going about losing weight and embarking on a weight loss journey. And I commonly see shown on social media that people should be able to diet on relatively high calories and they shouldn't necessarily have to push themselves to perform that much energy output in terms of expenditure from training or steps or structured cardio. And that if it's not the case, then they're doing something wrong and they're unhealthy and their coach's protocols are wrong. And I personally just don't think that's the case. And I know that's not the case being a practitioner in this space in the sense that everyone responds to dieting differently. And unfortunately, a lot of people out there can't consistently lose a lot of weight eating 2000 calories a day, only walking 8,000 steps per day, doing four half-hearted training sessions per week sort of thing. It really just isn't the case. You usually have to push a little bit harder than that. And yeah, unfortunately, I think that there is a lot of messaging on social media saying that if you do have to get relatively aggressive on paper, so for example, let's say you have to diet closer to 1500 calories, or perhaps you do have to do some structured cardio during the week, then that's an unhealthy approach and an unsustainable approach. Mm. Well, dieting in general is unhealthy and unsustainable, but yeah, I completely agree with you. And it's almost like a selling point for other coaches to call out other people for saying, oh, this person dieted on 1500 calories. That means I could have done it so differently and they could have dieted on more calories, but mm. no, it doesn't quite work like that. Unfortunately, even, even people who like myself, for example, where I've gone through long off seasons of upregulating my metabolism or adapting favorably to more food, you still have to end up dieting on the same food when you diet down again. Mm -hmm. So I'm the exact same. I always end up around that 1500 calorie mark. Yeah. It's certainly not uncommon and probably more common to end up in that range rather than like 2000 to 2500 that's for sure especially mm -hmm. for females we did actually do a post though on this yesterday where we kind of like used a bell curve representation of how there is a range in terms of how people respond to different things it doesn't have to be weight loss either it could be muscle gain it could be response to anything related to health and fitness and basically there's one end of the spectrum where a small minority of people don't respond that well to weight loss and they have to dig very deep. Um, and then there's a small percentage of people who are the opposite end of, end of the spectrum and they can lose weight very easily on very high calories without doing much output. But then the majority of people are somewhere in the middle where they don't have to go crazy low. They don't get to be able to eat a lot of calories and lose weight still either. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But also, with that message that's sold saying that, oh, if you're dieting on sub 2000 calories, or if you have to go south of 1500 calories, then that's unhealthy, you're doing it wrong, you're metabolically damaged. I would almost argue that the average person, 
male or female, probably does have to diet somewhere within that range of 1,500 to 2,000 calories. Mm. That is an average responder. And anyone who can consistently drop body fat and maintain their health on over that amount of food, that would be a hyper responder. And then a non-responder to dieting would be someone who would have to, yes, on paper, get relatively aggressive with their calorie intake, going quite low and doing quite high expenditure just because their body metabolically adapts. But ultimately, it's all relative. If someone is losing body weight, then they are in an energy deficit relative to their baseline. And that's that. What their baseline is what they are accustomed to and how their body is accustomed to feeling. If you take energy away from that and you're losing body weight, then of course that person is going to feel energy deprived. So that could be someone who is normally maintaining their body weight on around 2000 calories. You put them into a deficit of around 1500 calories. They feel that energy deficit. But how can you say that that's different to someone who normally maintains their body weight on three and a half thousand calories and they might have to be in an energy deficit around 3,000 calories or 2,500 calories. Regardless, both of those people are energy deprived. And I think there just is this common misconception that one is better off and one is, you know, worse off for that case. So that, you know, ultimately, if you are eating less food, then you're always in a worse off position. If you're eating more food in absolute terms, then you're always in a better off position. But I'm going to give you bodybuilders a little bit of a compliment because I think a common misconception, particularly in the competing world. So for example, let's say that you have a bikini competitor. She's in her final few weeks of her prep, right? She's like sub 50 kilograms. She's just a small little human being. Let's say that she's dieting on anywhere between 1,200 to 1,500 calories. Then sitting across from the dinner table, you have her partner who is a bodybuilder and he's 80 kilograms and he's dieting on 2,500 calories. And sometimes, you know, she might throw a bit of slack at him saying, what do you have to complain about? You know, you're eating an extra thousand calories than I am. You get to have rice with your dinner. I'm actually going to stick up for the bodybuilders in this sense and say that even though bodybuilders, sure, they can diet on more food in absolute terms, it's all relative to their baseline and how far they are below their maintenance calories and also what level of conditioning they're actually pushing their body. Because I'm personally not a bodybuilder. I've never been as skin lean as the bodybuilders that stand up on stage, but I can only imagine how difficult that would feel, how tough that would honestly be on your body to be that energy deprived and that low in essential levels of body fat. So I would almost argue, even sure he gets to eat a few extra mouthfuls of food, he's probably pushing even harder than the bikini girl who actually probably has a higher level of body fat than him, despite she's eating a thousand less calories. What would you say about that, Jack? You've been that lean before. You've been in that position before. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, the amount of calories you consume is not to be confused with how you are feeling because someone like we even know towards the end of a comp prep where some people will increase their calories, but they'll end up feeling the worst because they're also the leanest that they have been. Mm. But 
I'm not, yeah, I, I think we need to relate it more so to the average person as well who isn't a bodybuilder because mm. bodybuilders do things to extremes. And ultimately, it's really about how the person does it comprised of their individual circumstance. So, for example, someone dieting on 1200 calories who really doesn't need to be doing that, that's not particularly healthy. But then there genuinely are people who need to be on 1200 calories to lose weight. For example, like someone who's 120 kilos, there's absolutely no way that they need to be on 1500 calories to Mm. lose weight. Um, So yeah, I just wanted to bring that across where like, we're not saying that everyone needs to be on less than uh, 2000 calories to lose weight. It's really down to the individual and basically what is the easiest thing that you can do to achieve your goals and lose weight. There's no point making it unnecessarily hard. Mm -hmm. So for example, depriving yourself of all carbohydrates and going ketogenic, or it's also not very healthy to consume whatever you want comprised of those calories. So like just eat ice cream for all your 2000 calories and try and lose weight. So Mm -hmm. there's, yeah, there's minutia to everything. Yeah, I think certainly building upon it, starting off at a baseline, seeing how you respond and then going from there of course and ultimately sometimes you just got to do what you got to do but I think it's important to never just make the assumption that just because someone is eating in absolute terms less food than you that they are worse off because it really just comes down to what were they accustomed prior to that in terms of the total amount of energy that they were consuming per day, how they actually felt in their own body, how they felt in their own mind, how they felt about their lifestyle as well. Or hell, some people enter into an energy deficit. You might take a good thousand calories away from what they were consuming prior in a surplus when they had poor lifestyle choices and poor nutritional choices, let's say. And despite them actually eating less energy in terms of calories, because you've majorly improved just the micronutrient quality of their diet, they genuinely just feel better in life. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of different ways to go about it without a doubt. But I think that everyone really just needs to kind of relate it to, okay, what am I accustomed to? What do I want to achieve? And what do I need to do to achieve that without comparing all of my values in absolute terms to someone else's? Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular content on our Instagram and YouTube channel. You can find those platforms by searching The Bodybuilding Dietitians. See you there. So those would be the main points that I guess I would list. Nothing really uh, too extravagant, but anything else that bothers you about the health and fitness industry? I guess the last thing that really just comes to mind for me would be coaches and people online missing the forest for the trees when it comes to followers and likes and engagement. And it's almost like it's just those numbers that they can just be almost consumed by. And they actually forget about the sole focus. And that's, you know, just being really appreciative and grateful for the audience that they already have, the followers that they already have, the community they've already built the clients that they already have as well. So just really giving to those people and showing a lot of appreciation and engaging with them and saying thank you, little things like that, rather than just chasing more, 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 just be like, wow, like I actually already have quite a lot and I'm very appreciative of that. I'm very thankful for that. So 
I agree with that for people who have large audiences, but not necessarily for people who are very focused on their social media who are still growing or still mm. want to grow more. Like if someone, like for example, if you see someone with 10,000 followers, you might perceive that as a lot of followers and they must have a really good base. But to them, that might not be what they're striving for. They're mm. striving for more than that. So, But again, that's just a number. But what, what I mean is just how you communicate with your followers online. It's the simplest things like a thank you. So let's say that you post up someone's screenshot from their podcast onto your story and you're like, this was a great episode. And then you tag them and it obviously shows up in their DMs. One, if it just says seen and they don't reshare it, they don't even like it. They don't even say thank you. It's like they just ignore it. Personally, for me, that really puts me off. I'm like man, like I went to a little bit of effort to like share your content because it is great content and it deserves sharing. But the response that I got from this, I'm a little bit put off by that because you couldn't even double tap it or you couldn't even say thank you or share it. That That's just something that I know personally with my values, like no matter what, I will always say thank you to everyone, right? Because they showed a little bit of love and they showed a little bit of support. That's the least you can do is just say thank you. Mm. Everyone's got time for that. You're sitting on the toilet on your phone. You can say thank you to a comment. <laughs> yeah, if you have your phone on you. Yeah, I think it's just it's just being a kind and respectful person and just taking care. What about care. people though who have, and just by the way, just as a disclaimer, I'm, I totally agree with you of course, but I'm just mm. throwing out um, different scenarios at you because it's fun. Yeah. What about someone who has like, a million followers like would you expect them to reply? okay i understand that it does get to a point sometimes what about even fifty thousand? Mm. because like they might have hundreds of dms a day yeah of course but you know i've personally never been in that position before but i think at least if they've actually opened the dm because even you or i and i are in this position on our own accounts and on tbd as well not all messages go to the main inbox. Some go into a requested inbox or like a hidden inbox and you've got to check those ones as well. Check the secret ones. Check the secret chambers for the DMs. But sometimes you don't automatically see those. So sometimes it doesn't even say seen from the person who owns the account. But I think that's a bit disrespectful if the message has actually been seen and it doesn't have at least a double tap to like acknowledge or at least a like a thank you or a smiley face or a reshare anything but if it if it's if it doesn't even say seen then obviously the person hasn't even seen the dm i think that's a little bit would different you rate a double tap as highly as like a, a few words or would you oh i would definitely rate a few words you know mm. the more taps you have to do on the screen i think mm. that's more considerate for sure as long as it's courteous but if someone has a lot of followers then obviously it does get to a point where a lot of the comments on their photos are probably spam bots anyway. <laughs> but of course, there's just, there's a lot of comments there and you can't necessarily like reply in detail to every single one. That's why they have the love heart icon, man. You could just press the love heart icon. Mm. The Instagram's made it quite easy now. Yeah, literally no excuse, right? If you're scrolling, you can tap. <laughs> I just think it just comes down to just being kind, being respectful and just very grateful for who is in your community and who you already work with as well. You know, for example, like before you go chasing more clientele, like make sure you're taking really good care of your current clients.
clientele. Like sometimes I see very silly things posted on social media. Like someone will be posting on their story all day and then they'll post a black screen and it says, all clients, please be patient. (laughs) And that just makes me laugh because I'm like, dude, if you have time to be posting on social media, then you probably have time to be responding to a few of your clients. Like get off Instagram, please, and take care of your clients. Or if it was once a month, I'd understand, but every second day or oh, every day, that's a bit excessive. I read that as a coach and I'm just like, man, that's, that's a bit of poor coaching practices sort of thing. That's the way I read it. But perhaps people post that to almost try to tell people in a roundabout way, like, yeah, I've got clients and so many of them are messaging me that I have to tell them to be patient. Well, yeah, it's another way of advertising, of course. I just think it's quite a poor way of advertising. I do too, because it's like, um, you're not a very prompt coach. Like, and you're spending more time on Instagram than you are actually speaking to your clientele who are paying you. It's mm. very unlikely Instagram's I, paying you. <laughs> I can just see so many of my clients, if I posted that, like messaging me and probably paying me out for saying that, to be honest. Still, still, and like... Assumptions, man. How can you just assume that every one of your clients is also on Instagram and they're checking out your story? What would you like throw that back at them and be and if they message you and they're like, hey, I haven't heard from you in a few days, would you mind replying to my questions? They're like, didn't you see my story on Saturday? I said, please be patient. Anyway, <laughs> I might get some flack for that, but it just it just makes me chuckle sort of thing. Yeah, I, it doesn't bother me. It's just, I find it quite humorous. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, those are a few things that uh, rustle our jimmies when it comes to the health and fitness industry. Jack, this next question is a bit of a juicy one. Pardon the pun. It says, would you ever consider taking PEDs? Yeah, well, we've, we haven't asked, uh, touched on this question for a long time. And I would say my thoughts haven't really changed too much. And the short answer is no. I wouldn't consume an amount of PEDs that would risk my health because I'm a very health conscious person and I do get anxious quite easily about little health things that pop up, Mm. including like injuries as I'm sure everyone knows. So I think me taking PEDs on top of that, I would be a very anxious person and I wouldn't be able to deal with the psychology of taking PEDs and risking my health um, to that extent. And I think Mike Isretel, he did a recent podcast with uh, Steve Hall about like the side effects of PEDs. And he actually dwelled quite a lot on the, the, this, the mental and psychological implications. And I think that probably dwells on me more than the physical implications because I think it's just a good episode. So people, if people are interested in that sort of stuff, then they should probably listen to it. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting topic. And it's something that I think is commonly just not spoken about or not even considered when it actually does come to performance enhancing drug use in that you don't just take supplements and just grow a lot of muscle. Like there certainly are some negative side effects and it's not just to do with your physical health, like your cardiovascular health or hormonal health, but man, your, your psychological health, boy, that can really take a beating. And it's very interesting how he made the point that sometimes it's the guys at the top who can stay in this sport the longest. They're the ones who can withstand just the psychological ramifications that come 
negatively with drug use you know things like depression things like anxiety things like feeling just very emotional very angry if you can actually withstand that for a long period of time changes in libido maybe as well lots of changes in libido i bet but boy it it would be very tough uh and he even made the point that perhaps the reason why ronnie coleman was able to succeed at such a high level is because mentally like ronnie is just he comes across as just such a level-headed kind humble calm dude and maybe just didn't take a psychological beating on him but everyone responds differently to these Mm. sort of things. Yeah, I think the difficulty with this question is I'm not even going to pretend like I know that much Mm. about PEDs because it's not really a field of expertise for me. But something that does pike my interest is actually more related to like microdosing. Mm. And I will be interested to see if any more research or information on that comes out in future years because... I can see myself potentially doing something like that, maybe. Um, not obviously while I natural bodybuild, but after that, like seeing how my testosterone changes all the time, whether it will actually be healthier for me to supplement with testosterone to uh, have a more normal level mm. um, if my testo- natural production continues to decrease. Yeah, because being either side of the reference range, that is ultimately unhealthy. And even that argument's been raised before, I think, by like Victor Black with his Mm. safer use model in the sense that perhaps bodybuilders who are enhanced but taking testosterone replacement therapy at a very low dose so that they're still within a normal physiological range, could you argue that they are hormonally healthier and physiologically healthier than a natural bodybuilder who his testosterone levels are just absolutely tanked because that's the whole reason that testosterone replacement therapy was invented and prescribed in the first place. It's for men and some females as well who their testosterone isn't naturally within the normal physiological range. It is below. And we know testosterone, it's a, it's a hormone that we need for our health. We need for our bone mineral density and also just our skeletal muscle mass, our cardiovascular health mental health as well everything so yeah what about you though i've answered i Mm -hmm. guess it's a less common thing for females to take pds it's i'm not gonna lie in the case that i would certainly be curious i'd be very curious to see what i would look like i'd be very curious to see how i would feel but to be completely honest i'm a hell of a lot more curious to actually find out what i can do in this sport naturally over the next coming decades that is the curiosity that's not going to kill the cat, but it's <laughs> going to keep me going as for as long as possible, natural in this space for sure. And I personally wouldn't actually consider taking performance enhancing drugs unless I had like capped out at the very top of the natural ranks. So let's say that I or one day I will be at the very top. That's my ultimate goal. But I climb that ladder and I just, I'm undefeated. I I win everything in in all of the natural federations for fitness or bikini, whatever along in line with those divisions. And I'm world champion. That's the only case where I would be like, okay, I've capped out in the natural ranks now. That's when I would personally consider then taking it to the next level. Because I'm like, I've demonstrated to myself that I can take my physique as far as I can within the natural stream that's when you would then go to the performance enhanced stream because I just see 
the sport of bodybuilding forever growing and evolving and the standard is just getting absolutely ridiculous and it keeps climbing that I personally only see the trade-off worth your health if you actually wanted to pursue the enhanced stream if you really were at the top tier of the natural stream already. It's almost like a Jared Feather, like Jared Feather almost basically capped out as a natural bodybuilder and then he went down the enhanced route because it's like, I've got the genetic potential to do this naturally. What happens if I take a few performance enhancing drugs? Like what's the next level beyond this? Mm. What, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's still down to the individual. Mm. and People can do what they want to do. But mm. to me, that would be the sign that, okay, this is going to be worth it. Yeah, yeah I think it's, it's a solid rationale. Mm. And I think one thing that people might raise is you might never get there. As in, not that I don't have faith that you'll get there objectively in terms of like winning and being a, a pro and stuff but mm. like will you ever reach your natural potential like that's the thing mm. is it is it even achievable yeah so, yeah but definitely is a interesting point of discussion hey guys just a reminder that we don't just coach physique athletes but we do coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal therefore if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services you can always head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com or alternatively click the link in the show notes below i think we have time for one more question today though okay well this very last one it says is there any benefit to being programmed 40 to 50 working sets per session it feels like a lot yeah it is a lot and i guess to put it into perspective i probably do Let's say I do like six to eight exercises each session. I do around two to three sets. So the max I would probably do in a session is like 24 working sets. More like probably 18 to 20, I would say. Mm, I'm the exact same. Mm. So let's try and approach this objectively. So I think the only benefit of doing 40 to 50 is you, if you're in a prep, you would burn more calories. Mm. And it's not a particularly efficient way of burning more calories either. Um, sometimes I think uh, increase in volume can also make up for it for a lack of intensity while training as well. So potentially um, if you're just someone who doesn't train with much intensity or you're in an energy deprived state and you can't summon enough intensity, then sometimes an increase in volume can offset that. But I still think that 40 to 50 is still a bit excessive for yeah, that. Yeah, because there's a fine line. Because mm. yeah, let's say that you're doing a session and in total you're doing eight different exercises. And when we say that, we're not saying you're going in there, you're doing eight compound movements. <laughs> you're maybe doing like two compound movements. You could do a, and the rest are like isolations and even throw in some things there, like some calves and some hip abductions, lateral raises, whatever it may be. But even if you were doing 40 working sets among eight exercises that's still five sets per exercise if you're doing closer to 50 working sets that's six sets per exercise that is a lot of sets and mm. i would genuinely question because you're doing so many sets are you really training with as high of a level of intensity if you even just did two-thirds you know if you went from six sets down to four or if you did half if you did three sets instead of six i bet my bottom dollar that you would be able to push a little bit harder on that leg press compared to if you were, you just knew that you had to do six mm. sets on the leg press. I would honestly, if, if 
some if I for whatever reason had to do that much volume, I think I would honestly maybe rather switch sports than <laughs> do six sets of of a movement. Because uh, yeah, Tara makes a great point that it really just comes down to the quality of the movement and the intensity at which you train mm. and doing six sets just really kind of it's junk volume for lack of a better word. And especially for movements like squats or even hip thrusts and leg press and uh, heavy presses and RDLs or deadlifts, like that amount of sets is just super excessive. Mm-hmm. I can understand six sets and maybe a lateral raise uh, maybe, but the the sixth set is nowhere near going to be close to the first set. Yeah, ultimately you can, but that doesn't mean you should, and it certainly doesn't mean that just adding on more and more volume is going to give you better results just mm. because you feel like you're doing more. Mm. Well, the thing is, I'm sure quite a few people who listen to us are actually doing forty to fifty working sets uh, per session, um, or maybe not a lot, but I'm sure a handful are. So maybe this is our kind of uh homework for you is for one of your sessions like keep to the same exercises and let's say you're probably doing like around i don't know five to eight exercises a session um try and do three sets for every exercise and approach them with quality over quantity approach them with a high intensity and see how your session goes Mm. like um I think you'll honestly have a really good session. Yeah, the enjoyment factor. Like you said, you're like, if I had to do 50 sets five times a week, probably pick a different sport, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Go sailing or something. Yeah, that does sound nice, going sailing instead of doing 50 sets on leg day. Boy, oh boy. But yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely along the same lines. Like, just learn how to train with a high level of intensity and find that really sweet spot for you. And it should come to the point where you get to the end of two or three sets of a hard movement. And you're like, I can't even fathom doing a fourth. Like mm. I wouldn't want to do a fourth. I'm I'm spent. What would a fourth give me? It genuinely would just be junk. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, uh, boy. So hopefully, hopefully that answers and your question. we speak from sort of experience as well. Like I don't think I've ever done 50 or 40, mm-hmm. but I have definitely done lots of sets. Like I've done eight exercises probably for four sets each. Mm. That's 32. So I'm speaking from a certain degree of experience and mm. I definitely enjoy doing two or three. Yeah, it's good because uh, again, you never actually realize psychologically how much you are reserving for those following sets until you just have that mental switch where you're like, I've only got to do it twice, or I've only got to do it three times. You can train so much harder. And there's nothing quite as empowering as lifting heavier weights and actually seeing your numbers go up in the gym as well. Mm. Yeah, I'll, I'll even call some of my clients out on it too, like, cause I can see, you know, what their sets, their reps, their weights, how many total reps they're completing. And let's say that they are doing a big compound like a, a Bulgarian, right? Or a hack squat. And they make a comment, they're like, I was feeling really good at the end of the third set, so I did a fourth. (laughs) And then during our check-in, I'll be like, we're increasing the weight on your hack squat. (laughs) Because you don't need to do four sets on a hack squat. You can keep to three, but clearly you can just add a little bit more weight to the hack. Yeah, the other giveaway as well is when people start lighter. Mm. And then, so let's say they do 50 kilos on the hack, and then set two, they do 75, set three, they do 100, and then set four, they end on like 120 or something. And the 120 has the most amount of reps. Mm. It's a kind of like, yeah, to give away that 
like probably the first three sets there were warm-up sets. Yeah, exactly right. So really the way that it should be going is if you should be either lifting the same amount of weight across your sets or probably doing like a top set and a back off set. Mm. And it's very natural for reps to taper down. And for example, like on a shoulder press, your first set, you might get 10. The next two sets, you might get eight, right? That just means that you're pre-fatigued and you're really pushing yourself. But it shouldn't necessarily go like, Eight, eight, fifteen, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, anyone who wants to try a lower set approach, maybe give it a try this week or next week, and let us know. How You're you even go. considering, like you've got, you've obviously taken your RDLs down to two sets, but you even said yesterday, you're like. Tiara, I reckon I could get away with one set. <laughs> mm, I'm not. Yeah, I wasn't even joking. I, I'm. I'm probably going to actually do that before the end of my training career i'll mm. definitely do a one set approach for probably rdls um because that second set i'm pretty spent after that first set yeah, yeah. <laughs> the second set doesn't really provide me with too much mm-hmm. um other than uh a lot of um fried brain cells i think yeah so anyway we'll end this podcast with one thing that we learned this week okay well can i go first sure i learned that every rental house has a story and you never quite know who actually lived in your rental house before you, <laughs> unless the real estate agent tells you. So about two weeks ago, we had some real estate agents over here just checking out the house, doing their you know usual inspections, whatever it may be. And I struck up a conversation with one of them. And he said, you know that the lead singer at Coldplay used to live in this place? And I'm like... <laughs> get out of town what you talking about and he's like no legit like the lead singer of Coldplay used to own this house and I was a bit like what are you serious anyway the guy left and then I texted you and I was like apparently the lead singer of Coldplay used to live in this place and then I texted the actual owner of this house because he had a real estate agent working under him the one I was speaking to and I was like you never told me the lead singer of Coldplay used to live here and he was like, ha ha ha, close. It was the lead singer of Powderfinger. <laughs> Just a little different. <laughs> because I was like Googling our suburb and I was Googling lead singer of Coldplay. And like, I was getting a lot of weird Google search responses. Uh, but I was like, I don't, I don't know. Did Coldplay seriously used to jam in our living room? Turns out, no. If you've no. seen our house, then definitely not. Turns out, no. But apparently, Powderfinger and the whole gang used to jam in our living room. So that's pretty cool, man. So mm. lead singer Powderfinger. Yeah, now it's two dogs <laughs> instead of Powderfinger. They have been replaced. I'm sure a lot of the American listeners, though, don't, haven't heard of Powderfinger. Mm, just look up like that song. It's like, my happiness. <gasps> that one. What's another song by him? Uh, these days, I think. Yeah, these days. No, I think that's actually the other dude, Pete Murray or something. Mm, I think they might have a song called These Days. Yeah, but Powderfinger, they're they're a band that's definitely from here in Brisbane, Australia. And apparently they used to, you know, maybe they even wrote some of their songs in this place. Who knows, eh? Mm. You know how some people, they actually come back later in life and they'll actually like come back to one of their old houses and they'll knock on your door and they'll be like, hey, you know, sorry to bother you, but I used to live here 15 years ago and I just wanted to take a little trip down memory lane. Who knows, man? The band, the whole band might rock up and mm. the dogs might bark. And Well, it's even greater coincidence because they went to, well, one of the guys or two of the guys went to my school, mm. Brisbane Grammar School. Man. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway. our, our funky little rental, it's got some stories. Mm. 
Well, something that I learned this week was I didn't, I forgot actually that my massage gun came with different attachments. Mm. So I've been using this kind of soft rubber attachment on the front. And basically like I'm so sensitive, like desensitized to the massage gun now that it really wasn't doing much for me. So I changed it out for the metal head now <laughs> and that seems to work a lot better. Yeah. And then I tried using it. I could only put it on like the first level. Yeah. And there's six. Yeah. Boy, I just <laughs> scared me to get bruised from that thing. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I learned. Very exciting. Are there any with any spikes on them? There's one with two prongs, yeah, like a devil's pitchfork. Jesus, yeah. <laughs> you stay away from me. <laughs> All right, guys, well, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD, and we'll catch you next week.